My name is Maria. I'm a sober alcoholic. My sobriety date is April 4th, 2013. Um, just a, a couple little things about myself. Um, I'm originally from Cuba, um, of, of Cuban parents. And uh, my parents were political refugees fleeing the uh, Castro's communism. So um, my parents who were in their, in their early 30s um, left Cuba and, and came to uh, South Florida with myself who was just about to turn five and my brother who, was, who had just turned 14. Nobody spoke English, um, but my mom had studied English as a foreign language in Cuba. And um, luckily for that, that was sort of like being able to, to get going. And um, you know what, like so many Cuban immigrants, um, they quickly rebuilt their lives. Um, my, my folks got a divorce sometime between when I was about seven or eight. And my mom and I left South Florida and she began pursuing her career. Uh, and um, so we went to California, we went to New Mexico and because um, her, her work always had, they were government funded projects and um, they had terms. So it was usually two years or three years. And sometimes if the work wouldn't get done, they'd re-up the term. But um, anyway, that's why we had occasion to sort of travel around a bit. She got a project in Denver and um, that was when I was about 12 years old that I moved here, 12 or 13, somewhere about there. And, um, and we never left. Um, we, we fell in love with it here and, and we never left. My teenage years were pretty normal. Um, well, I, I, actually, I guess I should back up. Some people like to talk about their, their first drink. I had my first drink probably when I was about 11 or 12. Actually, I misspoke my first drunk because in, in our culture, you know, during holidays, um, it's not at all unusual to give the little ones a little finger of wine with seltzer in it. So I'd probably had sips of my dad's beer and so on and so forth. But the first time I ever remember being drunk, I was about 11 or 12 and my mom was having a cocktail party and my job was to and it was around the holidays so it was champagne my job was to refill glasses and and you know the peanut bowl and the chip bowl and all that stuff and i don't remember any of it but apparently i must have taken some sips here and there because according to the story i sort of disappeared and the party ended and my mom went looking for me and apparently i was um, underneath a table with my blankie and um, I had sort of barfed on my blankie, which is how um, I parted paths with my blankie. Um, anyways, I, my teenage years, um, I, tried, I tried weed for the first time when I was about 14 or 15 and, and I liked it. 
And, um, you know, I, I, I had it whenever there was occasion um, to have it. And uh, I never, uh, never remember getting drunk after that first one. And like I said, I don't think I remember that. It's just a matter of the story that I was told. But, you know, many people share that their, their first drunk, um, they were basically off to the races. They were, you know, wanting more, um, wanting to have that feeling. I, I, that wasn't me. And in my teenage years, um, when I was in high school and stuff, we used to have these things here in Colorado called woodsies. And somebody would arrange this woodsy, which was a party in the woods, and somehow a keg of beer and whatever else. And, and we'd have a party. And I remember drinking absolutely, for sure I drank. And, um, and I remember having a sensation um, that always let me know that I was where I wanted to be. And it would be this feeling that I had when I would go to the bathroom. And it wasn't the feeling that I had of urinating. It was this feeling that I had when I sat on the pot and I, and I had this little feeling and I was like, okay, I'm there. And I'd stop. And, um, that was my, my teenage years, just, you know, hanging out with the crowd. I don't remember any major drunks. I don't remember, um, any throw-ups. I don't remember any of that. Um, though I, I drank, um, and, and I smoked weed. So in my twenties, um, I moved to San Francisco. Um, I, I, I knew I was gay from a pretty early age and I moved to San Francisco just, just on the eve of having turned 21 and, um, fucked around there a little bit in terms of trying to find a job and, and something that worked for me. But in short order, I got really lucky <laughs> and I got a job at a nightclub. And um, it was on its way to being the nightclub in all of San Francisco. And I got exposed to uh, cocaine there. And I did, I did um, jump on that train for a while because it seemed to me that all of the cool people were doing it and so if I did it, I was cool too. And I thought I was cool. So I definitely did it. And I, I did that for a couple of years, it seems. Um, I was in sort of a limelight position and I received a lot of free Coke. I received a lot of free entries into other nightclubs. I received a lot of free drinks. Um, I was definitely, you know, there, um, I thought. And so I just kind of bounced along. And honestly, one day, uh, one morning after being up all night, I just uh, had this realization about that drug. And basically, I stopped doing it. I, I could see the writing on the wall. And um, I pretty much quit cold turkey. I continued drinking and I never had really much trouble. I mean, there were probably times when I overindulged here and there, but I remember 
very clearly being able to have a six pack of beer, pick up a six pack of beer, go home, have a beer, and the six pack would be in the refrigerator a week later. I didn't have I didn't have the troubles that I developed. Um, in my 20s, I met the first love of my life. And um, we developed a relationship that uh, became pretty serious. And um, by then it was, oh hell, by then it was sort of the late 80s. And the cost of living in San Francisco was pretty astronomical. And my dad had just died suddenly and I had come back to Colorado to spend time with my mom. And, and things in Colorado had changed. It wasn't as much of a cow town, uh, Denver rather, as much of a cow town as it used to be. Um, it was still fairly hickish, but not quite as bad as when I was a teenager growing up here. And, um, and it was beautiful. You know, I, I was seeing it through, through different eyes and it was affordable, unlike today. And um, so I thought to myself, you know, I want quality time with my mom. I don't want to lose her like, like I did my dad. And suddenly, you know, shockingly like that. And um, so I started making a pitch to my partner at the time to move here because our relationship was by now getting pretty serious. And I was like, we'll never be able to afford housing in San Francisco or in the East Bay or in the South Bay, definitely not in Marin County. And, um, and I don't want to rent for the rest of my life. So basically I did a good sales job on her and we ended up moving here back here. It was a move back for me in 1993. And um, I had been with my partner by then for five years. And things were cool. We bumped along. I was, you know, drinking uh, normally. I, I liked beer. I liked wine. Um, I wasn't much of a hard booze drinker. And I don't know, you know, if it was just the nature of, of this relationship but um, if any of you are familiar with the term imago, it's a therapeutic term. It's a type of therapy, imago therapy, and it's couples therapy. And um, it, it's, it's basically the premise that we pick a person who is like a parent that we have unresolved shit with. And I, when I learned about this, I realized that my partner was my perfect imago for my mom. And uh, she was very domineering and she was very um, airy fairy narcissistic. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. She was, you know, a, a bit woo woo and very narcissistic, but, but was completely unable to see that about herself. And, and she thought that, you know, she was just this awesome, uh, you know, sort of hippie-ish, Wiccan, pagan, awesome woman. And she was actually quite controlling and quite bossy. And it just got worse and worse and worse in our relationship. And I basically just started drinking at her 
and and I didn't realize it. Like when she would really get on my case, um, I would have a couple of beers or whatever, a couple of glasses of wine, and it was incredibly effective at making me not care. And I was like, well, this is this is this is okay. And um, you know, we did some couples counseling here and there, whatever, but we had some issues and then we had some adversity that was outside of us. Um, she, her eldest brother was found dead in his apartment. Well, he'd had a heart attack and fell. And when he fell, he probably hit the, the coffee table or something because he was found in a pool of blood, very dramatic, very shocking. Then uh, one of her sisters um, was found out that she was basically full of cancer and she was dead within like a month. Um, her One of her brothers in therapy uh, came to realize that he had been um, sexually, uh, I don't know, mishandled, abused, whatever, he was a little bit vague about it, but it had to do with their dad. And it came out that their dad, you know, had relations with men. And it was all this fucking trauma, 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 trauma. On my side, my mom had cancer. And then fucking A, I got cancer. I got diagnosed with cancer. So it was all of this adversity. Anyway, you know, for some people, adversity really brings them together. But for us, it absolutely drove us apart. And I didn't realize it, but um, I mean, I didn't realize that that it was going to it was the breaking point to all of the shit that was going on with us. I just thought everything bad that is, could possibly happen has already happened. There's nothing less left to happen. And that's when one night, the night before, her entire family, all her siblings, their spouses and their kids were coming to Colorado for a family reunion. We had rented a lodge up in the mountains and uh, we were going to have the entire place to ourselves. The night before all of this, she fucking wakes me up at three o'clock in the morning, shakes me awake and says, I can't do this anymore. And I'm like, er, 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 what? She's like, I, I'm not in love with you anymore. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Your whole entire fucking family's coming here tomorrow and you're dropping this bomb on me tonight. And she says, oh yeah. And by the way, don't say anything to anybody. Let me handle it. By now we've been together 19 years. And so can I just say that I did some drinking at her and at the situation over the course of that, that family reunion. Anyways, um, that was in August of 2006. She moved out in September of 2006 and I was lost. I was absolutely lost. And uh, I, had trouble sleeping. I basically would go to work and come home and wander around the, the half empty house and look out the window and feel this like incredible emptiness. And in, in short order, I had this realization that 
wine made me sleepy. And so I commenced to drinking a glass of wine every night when I came home from work, I'd have a glass of wine and I'd, you know, do my wandering around and sometimes take a hot bath or whatever and, and go to bed. Well, I, I think you probably know where this story is going from this point. So one glass of wine turned into two glasses of wine. And I don't know really at what point, I don't recall, um, but it happened fairly fast that it was the whole bottle. And um, I, I crossed the line. And, and pretty soon I started uh, not being able to wait for my first drink. So on the drive home from work, I'd stop at the liquor store and pick up a shooter. And one shooter turned into two shooters. And at some point, it was a half a pint of vodka and a can of beer. And I was very aware of a DUI. So I'm telling you, I was able to, to drink that half a pint of vodka and, and can of beer within like five or 10 minutes, go to the next place, throw the stuff away, and then drive home. If I was lucky and if I was doing good, I wouldn't stop at the liquor store in Morrison and get another half pint, and this time probably a 16-ounce can of beer. But sometimes I'd manage to make it home with just that under my belt. But you guys, um, things escalated for me, and I reached a point where I was a daily drinker, and I reached a point where I needed a drink in the morning to steady my hands. I needed a drink um, around noonish or two to again, you know, I'd start getting the shakes. I needed that drink to to steady my hands and you know get through my work day. I had to get through my work day. The interesting thing about my work day is is that. Um, I drove for a living. I drove an enormous, um, highly recognizable brand of uh, delivery service. And I would have to go to a liquor store in my truck, in my uniform, to pick up a shooter to steady those hands. And I'm telling you, I, I think I missed my calling um, I should have been an actress because I'd get out of my truck and I'd have that package in my hand and I'd be looking at the package and I'd be looking around like I was looking for an address and look at the package, go into the liquor store, get the 90 proof shooter of schnapps, put it in my pocket, walk back out like, oh, that wasn't it. Go in my truck, go in the back, slam it down and then be on my way. Um, and things bumped along like that for quite some time. Um, I think in, in around 2011, uh, I somehow managed to meet somebody that I got involved with. And actually, it worked out because it was a long distance relationship. I'm not quite sure what would have happened if she would have lived nearby and I wouldn't have been able to hide my then what what was clearly alcoholism by then 
but uh, we had a long distance relationship and um, one time, one time I wanted margaritas and after the margaritas, she said to me, you know, I don't really mind beer and wine and um, I don't mind, you know, you drink beer, whatever, wine, but I really don't like hard liquor. And I was like, got it. I'll be sure never drink hard liquor around you. I said to myself, because by then, I mean, I, I was like on the cheapest vodka that I could buy and the cheap, just the cheapest booze that I could buy because the quantity, you know, I started out all cool with nice wine and all cool with craft beer. And I ended up with fucking McCormick vodka and Budweiser. All right. So anyway, um, fast forward, we have been together for, I don't know, about a year and a half right now. And we went on vacation and, um, gee, Marsha, I guess I didn't meet my, my goal of half an hour. Oh, well, you said I could talk as long as I wanted. Um, I, I promise I'm going to get to the, what it's like now. I promise. Um, but what happened was that we went on vacation to South Beach, Florida. And like I said at the beginning of the conversation, I'm Cuban. I was all about mojitos. Mojitos, mojitos, mojitos. I'm gonna make mojitos. It's gonna be the best fucking mojito you ever had in your life. And it's, and it's great. We're having mojitos in South Florida around all these Cubans. It's fabulous. So I got the, I got like the, the, not a handle, but the biggest bottle of, of Bacardi that wasn't, you know, the handle size. I got the seltzer, I got the lime and boy, I guess my timing was not right because I could not find spearmint to save my life in all of South Florida. It was not spearmint season. So anyways, no mojitos, but in the meantime, I'm drinking from that bottle behind her back because, of course, when I'm in front of her, we can only drink beer and wine. She doesn't really like wine. She likes beer. So really, I drank beer. And um, so, you know, I would volunteer to go into the kitchen to get water, volunteer to go into the kitchen to do whatever and take a hit off my bottle. The uh, the the. Second to the last morning, we were leaving the next morning very early. Um, I wake up and she's not in the bed. And uh, when I go out into the, the living room area of this apartment that we were in in uh, South Beach, somehow I fucking knew. And she had this look on her face and she's almost drumming her fingers on the table. And she's like, where is it? And I'm like where, where's, where's what? And she's like that bottle of Bacardi. I've looked all over this entire apartment. I've torn this place apart. Where is it? And this is where I thought, well, fucking a, I guess my jig is up and all of my sarcasm and, and all my defenses came up and I sashayed over to the freezer and I opened the freezer and I pull out this enormous bottle of Bacardi that by then had like, I don't know, two fingers left. And it was day four. And I said to her, gee, I guess you don't know hard liquor doesn't freeze. And that was it. 
hard liquor doesn't freeze. I hid the bottle in the freezer. She had no clue. She didn't look in the freezer. Anyways, we had the, the pardon the expression, come to Jesus conversation. And I admitted um, my problem. And um, I, 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 I managed to not drink that day. And then the next day we flew home. She went to her home in Wisconsin. I came to my home in Colorado and I continued to drink um, for probably another couple of weeks. And then what happened was is that I had three co close calls at work. One was with a, a coworker, one was with a customer and they both said that they smelled booze on my breath. And I was, you know, quickly doing the doo -doo 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 soft shoe and a little dance. And with my coworker, I made up some story about how we had gone partying last night and I got to bed so late and, oh my God, I can't believe my breath still smells like booze. And all she did was reach in her purse and give me a stick of gum. The customer, I got to be honest with you, my heart was here the whole rest of the day because I thought when I get back to the station, my manager is going to say to me, I need to talk to you. And I and then I'm I'm fucked. I'm I'm busted. I'm I'm fired and I'm fucked. And somehow that didn't happen. And um, I had a number three and I can't remember what it was. Oh, fuck. I got pulled over by a cop. How could I forget that? I got pulled over by a cop and had to do field sobriety. And I was on my way home from work. I already had my half pint and my 12 ounce can under my belt. And um, you know what, you guys, um, I left because it's not really an important part of the story, but I was an athlete in my youth. And I got to tell you that I had no trouble doing that field sobriety test because I'm athletic. I'm athletic. I balanced on one foot. All, no problem. But I knew that fucker knew. I knew he knew. And I knew that he let me go gr begrudgingly or whatever. But he let me go. And when I got home, that was it. It was like, what are you going to do? You've got to do something. And so what I did was I... Uh, put myself into a detox. And five days later, when I was going to get out of that detox, had no idea what to do. The psychiatrist that was attending um, basically told me, you know, you've, you've, you can do inpatient, uh, you can do outpatient rehab or whatever they call it. And um, I was like, I can't do any of that. Um, I've got to work. And, and, he says, well, your only options, AA. And I promised him that I would go. And I left that place at 11 o'clock on a Monday morning. And I was at a 12 noon meeting. And I had no idea anything about it, really. I just remember looking around and seeing those framed um, things that you see in brick and mortar meetings, um, a framed thing that says, let go and let God easy does it. Um, and, and I just was like, I have no idea what's going on here. But I was very serious about staying sober. Um, so I start, I kept going to AA meetings. 
I found a meeting that really worked for my schedule and it was a seven day a week meeting. So I went every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday on my way to work. And that meeting is pretty much where I got sober. It was a traditional AA meeting in a clubhouse. And um, there was a lot of God talk. There was a lot of God talk. There was a lot of, you know, praying hands and all of that stuff. And I never really felt at odds with it in the beginning. But in the beginning, I feel like I was pretty fucked up. I was a daily drinker that drank morning, noon, and night. And I was pretty foggy. And I think that what happened to me is, is that when the fog lifted and I started hearing all the God talk and, you know, was on the other side of the what I call the bait and switch, the bait and switches, don't worry about the higher power, don't worry about anything. All you need to do is not drink and come to meetings. And so I was fine with that in the beginning, but then the bait and switch happened and I started getting the messages of you need to you need to find a higher power, because if you don't find a higher power, you're going to drink and you're going to die. And basically um, what ended up happening was uh, I got lucky and met a guy named Joe the Atheist. And Joe the Atheist told me about a brand new meeting in Denver called Freethinkers in AA. And it was on a Monday night and it was at 6.30 at night. Couldn't be at any worst day or time for me because I worked and I worked the second shift. And so I was working then. But I'll tell you what, when I had vacation, boom, I went to that meeting. And it was through that meeting that I was exposed to some literature and I was exposed to also the AA Agnostica website. And that was a game changer for me. Um, that was early in 2014. Um, in, in summer of 2014 was the first ever uh, secular AA conference, which was called something like we agnostics and it was WAFTA was the acronym. And it was in Santa Monica, California. I was 14 months sober and I went. And, and it was the experience that opened the door for um, my real sobriety. Before then, I, I was just not drinking and not knowing you know what was gonna come next. Um, I thought the only thing that I needed to do was stay sober. And, um, and I kind of thought that, you know, relative misery came along with it. I had no idea that I could be happily sober. Anyways, Jesus Christ, I'm so long winded. I'm sorry. Um, the good part came when, uh, in the early summer or late spring of 2017, I learned about the first secular AA Zoom meeting. Um, Jeb's meeting never really worked for me time-wise. It was so hard to get across town, my work schedule. It was just really, really difficult. And But I went as often as I could. And when this online meeting 
popped up. Man, I was there every Sunday. It was every Sunday at noon and it was great and I loved it. And one day in the meeting after the meeting, there was a group of gals and one of them said, you know, we should start a women's meeting. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. I'm in. I'll do whatever I will. I will, you know, work to make this happen. And I did. And we had our first meeting um, in uh, late August of 2017. It was a Zoom meeting. There were two women in that meeting who, um, you know, they were the, the, the puppeteers. They knew how to open the meeting. They knew how to work the controls. And I signed on and boom, there they were until they weren't. And basically what happened is that one woman announced that she was um, leaving AA because of sexual predation. She um, had a lot of, of unwanted attention and she had agreed with her therapist and her fiance that she was going to leave AA and, and you know, figure out other ways to remain sober. In short order, the second woman said um, that she was also leaving the meeting because she was going to travel the world. And then when she came back home after a year of traveling around, she was gonna pursue higher education and that the meeting didn't fit in her schedule anymore. And I remember that meeting and feeling devastated, like, oh my God, this meeting is gonna go away. And in that moment, I made the decision to grab the reins. And um, they showed me how to do things right quick. They gave me the password and the logon stuff. And there I was um, leading this meeting. And I led that meeting every Monday night for I don't know how long. It was very small, um, but there was a Canadian woman. There was a woman from Shanghai. There was a woman from uh, Brisbane, Australia, myself, and, and, and a woman from Florida. And it was teeny tiny. And... Um, that was um, sort of the, the birth of the sober she-devils. What ended up happening was the woman from Australia one day in the meeting after the meeting said, um, for fuck's sakes, can't we have somebody else lead the meeting besides Maria? And I have to say that I was so not offended and so grateful to her. I was like, oh my God, I, I, it, I guess it hadn't occurred to me to ask for help, you know, I'm very self-sufficient. Asking for help is, is a tall order and, and, and something that I really had to learn to embrace in, in AA. Um, anyway, that's when, when things really started developing um, in short order, we were having a meeting after the meeting and, and somebody said, you know, we need to name ourselves. And it was all these, you know, sisters of sobriety and, you know, you know, women happily sober and all this shit. And I said, what about sober she devils? And the woman from Australia who was a firecracker, she passed away. She, she, uh, I don't, I, she died of an illness. She did not die of, of alcoholism. Well, she didn't die of this illness. Anyway, she was like, I fucking love it. It's brilliant. And that was it. That was the sober she devils. And I and 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 
that was the beginning of what it's like now for me, because what it's like now for me is I have found the joy of sobriety. I have found um, my path to emotional sobriety. I have found um, my purpose, um, which is all about service, all about service. Um, it, it makes me feel um, complete and, and content. And, um, and that leads me to being here with you. So I planned on talking 30 minutes. I spoke for 45 because I can be so long-winded, but thank you very much for the invitation. I'm done.